Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Hebrews 11.21 says that by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped. Notice this, leaning on the top of his staff. All right, so that's our scripture verse for this morning. By faith, one more time, Jacob, let's look at this. When he was dying, each word is going to matter here. Each word especially matters when you're doing a Bible study on a single verse. I'll say that as well. But each word matters here. It says, when he was dying, Jacob blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Those are his grandsons. And he worshiped leaning on the top of his staff. So this is the word of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for, as we, we thank you each and every week, thank you for this moment right now. God, so many moments throughout this week that were spent in distracted ways, so many moments of our, of our lives, God, that are spent the same way, thoughts that are off, patterns of thinking and, and belief that are broken. So we thank you especially for the gift of this moment right here where we get to just stop for a minute. And what an incredible healthy practice that we as the people of God get to employ. We're just going to sit for a moment. There's so much to do. There's so many places to go. There's a beautiful outside world to see today. But just to sit here for a moment this morning and to open up our ears, to open up our hearts, and to say together, God, would you speak to us? That's what we want to do right now. We just want to pause. We want to be still, and we want to know who you are. And so, Father, that's our, our prayer each and every week as your children, that you would grow us in faith as you speak to us your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill me and that you would make this time meaningful, not just for this moment, but for eternity. We want to hear you speak to us. So, God, give us ears to hear what you say. And Holy Spirit, speak. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, each week as we look at a different verse here in Hebrews and we look at a different character, we're, we're trying to zero in on the verb of faith that they displayed, a really important principle even in just that, that faith is a verb. It's something you do. It's a way that you act according to your belief. And this morning, if you'd like to take notes, even if you don't, I encourage it, all right? But if you'd like to take notes, we're going to look this morning at how Jacob kept God. Jacob kept God. By faith. That's essentially what Hebrews 11.21 is communicating. And I'll unpack that a little bit more as well. But that by faith, Jacob kept God. He kept him. Now, this is such an interesting feature of Jacob's faith for the author of Hebrews to focus on. There is so much from the life of Jacob that could have been put in this verse. I want you to think about this for a second. Isaac, we looked at last week, there's very little press on that guy. All right? Not too much on him. It's a lot more about the people around him. But Jacob is a man who, in the book of Genesis, he gets a decent amount of narrative uh, given to his story. Uh, and, and a lot of different highs and lows in his journey that there is to learn from. There's a lot about Jacob's faith. 
in the story of Jacob that you would imagine would get included here in Hebrews 11. But out of all that the author could have chose, notice this, by faith, the author wants us to see that Jacob did some things. I want you to see this important phrase, when he was dying. When he was dying. Isn't this interesting? Uh, this, this verse here in Hebrews 11, it doesn't highlight how Jacob lived by faith. Instead, it wants us to see how he died by faith. It's kind of unique. It's kind of peculiar here. There's an intentional message being communicated here in this verse. Uh, what, what Hebrews 11.21, what the author of this verse is trying to depict is he's trying to depict the faith of someone, listen closely, who has endured to the very end. This is really important. Someone who has kept the faith. All right, I, I think of the great apostle Paul who said on his own deathbed in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. This is Paul. We don't know if he has seconds, hours. He definitely doesn't have weeks. But he, his, the word says here that his departure is at hand, okay? He's about to pass from earth into the presence of God. And at the end of his life, it's a similar message. He says, I have, looking back, I can say I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Paul says, I have kept the faith. This is the same sentiment that's being echoed here. It's a finish line faith. We get the idea, right? A faith that endures to the end. A faith that doesn't just, notice this, doesn't just find God, but keeps God. You know, these are simple biblical principles. Things like, first, that if you seek God, you will find him. That's an incredible promise in Scripture. Maybe today you're wondering if God can be found. And if you read the book of Acts chapter 17, there's this incredible section that says, God is not very far from each one of us. That he is reachable. That if you were to reach out to God and seek him, he will reveal himself to you. If you seek him, you will find him if you search for him with all your heart. Anybody found God? I'm just curious in this room. Have you found that to be true? Not a single hand went up. We're going to do all right, though. I pray you find him before you leave, okay? It's my prayer over our community. It's like, no, nah, I haven't found him yet. Um, what an incredible promise, though, that he's findable. But there's this, this additional kind of idea in Scripture. For those that have found God, there's this call to not just find him, but to keep what you've found. All right? Um, you remember growing up as a kid, you, the whole thing, finders, what? Keepers. Now, aren't you glad we don't do that with our lost and found? All right. But the idea is like, I, I, I didn't just come across this, but now that I found this, this is mine and I'm not letting go. I'm holding on tight to what I've found. Finders, keepers. Seekers, finders. If you seek him, you will find him. And also this vision of keeping what we found to the very end. Now, why is the author of Hebrews communicating this way? Why is the author of Hebrews trying to give us a vision of someone that had faith even on his deathbed. Well, if you remember the context, the author is writing to a community of people that are facing real temptation to let go of what they found. You ever found that to be true? This temptation to, and it's usually not like a complete abandonment of faith in God. It's usually like a slow-releasing grip. Like finger after finger is slowly removed from our tight grip of God. And before you know it, you lost the faith you once had. 
This is what he tells this community of people. And in the previous chapter, the author of Hebrews says to this community, notice this language, do not cast away your confidence, which has great, great reward. Do not cast it away. Don't Tom Hanks it is what I would say, all right? But notice the next verse. He says, for you have, not, you have need of endurance, this is so important, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. You see what he's saying? Don't let go. Keep going. It, it's amazing to reflect on how far God has brought you. But if you're not at the finish line, there's still faith to hold on to. Keep going. Don't cast off your confidence, but keep a strong handful. That's the vision we get of Jacob here on, the very, on his very deathbed. Now, I think it's important here to just stop for a minute and give some theological, some biblical underpinning, some important foundational ideas to this uh, to kind of complement it. Uh, first and foremost, I think it's important to think about the promise of God's preservation and this idea. Um, before we talk about us laying hold of God, we've got to first establish that though I'm going to emphasize this point today, I want to tell you that, that you keeping hold of God and the stuff you found in him and the truths about him, like your faith, which is you keeping hold of him, that is not your hope as a Christian. Let me remind you of that. Your ability to hold on to God. In fact, in scripture, it's the opposite. Your and my hope of what we found in God is not that I will keep God, but that what? God will keep me. That's my hope. That he holds on. He never loses a single child that he receives. Jesus says this in John chapter 10, verse 27 and 28. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. That's not an option if you're in Christ. Notice this, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So this is where it has to start, okay? If you're thinking of your faith and holding on to God to the finish line as like the means through which God accepts you, or the means through which you're, you're saved, then you're missing the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is we all have slippery hands, and we've all lost God. We've all lost faith. The good news of the gospel is despite that, God sent his son Jesus to secure us in the palm of God's hand. And here's the good news about God. God has a really tight grip. God cannot lose his children. Isn't that awesome to know that? Like, I don't know about you because I feel like I'm the kind of kid that if God could lose one, he would lose me. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was the kid at all times. We'd go to the grocery store, and it's like, where's Andrew, okay? And he's down some idol, uh, idol and aisle. It's probably true. Double entendre, all right? Um, and because that, that's just my tendency. I wander. I stray. If, if, if God could lose people, I would be the first. I'm losable. Anybody else feel that way sometimes? Like, God, I don't have the ability to stay in your hand, but that's not our hope. Our hope as Christians is not in our ability to stay in the hand of God. It's in God's ability to keep us, to keep us secure. Nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Now, that's, you know, simple terms for this is grace. Grace is that God holds on to me. Thank you, God. Because there's times where I'm not holding on to myself. There's times where I'm falling apart. There's times where my faith is in shambles. But grace, the gospel is this. You don't hold you together. God holds you. In fact, the Bible says that he holds all things together. It's in him all things consist. And certainly those that belong to him, as Jesus displays here. And so this is first the thing we got to think about. This is the promise of God's preservation. All right? We, we don't cross the finish line into heaven 
because we held on for the ride, and we did it. I made it. We boast in ourselves. We go, God, thanks for starting this thing. I'm glad I finished it. I got me here. You know, as if, like, God starts it, goes to heaven, and we meet him there. No, that's not the picture. The picture is of this promise of God's preservation keeping us. He keeps us. He preserves us. He holds us. Yet there's almost this paradox or this complementary picture in Scripture where in addition to the promise of God's preservation, you do also have the call for our perseverance. It's not one or the other. It's both and. That God keeps us, that's grace, but faith is us keeping hold of God. He keeps me and I keep hold of him, the call to perseverance. I think one of the, the best places in Scripture that, like, that just kind of summarized this principle in one verse, it's in 2 Peter chapter 1. And it's talking about the hope we have of salvation. And I don't have the right verse. That's, this is just awesome. This is three weeks in a row of this. Um, but 1 Peter 1.5 says that we are being kept by faith, waiting for the salvation that's to come. So you have both the promise of God keeping us and the call for us to lay hold. I want you to see Paul stressing this to his young disciple, Timothy. I got the right verse this time. 1 Timothy 6 Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. So look at this language. God's going to hold on to you, but notice this. You've got to lay hold of what he's given you. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Then Paul urges Timothy, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot and blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. So, so you have both of these emphases that my comfort and security is in that God holds me, but my call is to keep holding on to him, to keep securing my grip on God. And what again, what an incredible picture here with Jacob. Jacob holds on to God to the very end. The, the contrast of this is obviously someone who loses their grip and gives up on God. Now, this, I want you to hear this very closely. This must be a part of your vision for your Christianity. This must be a part of our, even as a church, our vision for discipleship. We must have, when we think about following Jesus, we must have more than a momentary experiential gathering Sunday vision for following Jesus. There has to be at some point in our vision of all of our ideas, of all that we're thinking about with following Jesus, there has to be a point where I think about, am I going to follow Jesus 20 years from now? Who am I going to be? Who am I going to be numbered with? Am I going to be numbered with the saints that persevered? Or am I going to be like those that cast it off their confidence? Now, and I'm not trying to scare us into thinking about these ideas, but it's such an important thing to think about. Can I tell you especially why? I think it's especially important to think about it because this is kind of counter, um, how do I say, like the counter tendency of American church Christian culture, by the way. Everything that we're raised and groomed here in the West is like, it emphasizes the intensity of the experience, doesn't it? So, so Sunday gatherings, they need to be as intense of an experience as possible. You need to walk away from that thing going, that was intense okay what's that great pun did you hear about the circus fire they said it was intense all right my last joke of the sermon okay 
But there's such an emphasis on that today. It's about the experience. It's about the moment. And so what are we selling and what are we discipling into people when that is how we drive the church? It's this intense experience. We're, we're driving people to expect something from God that Scripture doesn't tell us to expect. Most of the Christian life isn't epically intense. Sometimes it's deeply difficult. Sometimes God doesn't feel as close as the fog machine, okay? He, fe he feels as far as anyone. And so this is important for us because a lot of times, and listen, it, and, I, and I'm saying we, we could like, as a church here, I'm not like saying an us and them thing. I'm saying we, like the American church, me. I can tend to think so momentary about church and ministry and discipleship that we lose sight of what scripture often lifts up. Listen closely. It's not the intensity of a fast-paced sprint. We all know Christians that sprinted really fast for a season, right? And what did they do? They burned out. I'm so prone to this. Got to expedite the discipleship. Got to expedite the experience. And we can do this. We, we can build a vision even for your own life. You might not, right, right now, you not, might not realize it, but your whole understanding of your Christian life, it's this intense, fast-paced sprint. Now, what God tends to highly esteem in Scripture is, is not that we shouldn't have an intense experience with God, but there should be coupled with that a passion for, we could say, the longevity of a well-paced, we'll say, marathon. There's a big difference there. There's the intensity of a fast-paced sprint. Make it epic. Make it awesome. Everyone needs to just feel good and feel like that was intense. Jesus met us. But the scriptures say, yes, encounter God, but have in your vision this idea of a long-term, resilient discipleship. Like, here's a good way to test this, and, and Corona kind of messed with this, didn't it? It's like, uh-oh, we can't manufacture intense experiences on Sunday anymore, so let's do our best to put it online. But if you lose the intense experience of Sunday and you lose your faith, Perhaps your vision of faith is too short, it's too mild, it's based on something too little. It needs to be tethered to a person. It needs to be anchored in a relationship with the living God. It's got to have a long-term vision for it, okay? I'm not saying Sundays don't matter, otherwise we wouldn't be here right now. But I'm just talking about the difference of this. In fact, I usually do this. Like, I uh, have an idea, and I have a really smart guy that has a really great quote about it. And so I, I end up talking when I really should just show you the quote. Eugene Peterson wrote one of the most helpful books for anyone in ministry and just following Jesus in general that he entitled, look at the title of this book, by the way, Vision of Christianity, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That doesn't get a lot of engagement on Instagram. You know what I'm saying? It's like, come to Solace this Sunday. It's going to be underwhelming, and it's going to be dedicated to a long obedience in the same direction. I just think of driving out of Florida. You know what I'm saying? An Arby's, you know. Now, I, there's a scenic route to have with Jesus, but what a vision. Now, I want you to see what, what Eugene Peterson says. Notice this incredible idea. He says, there is a great market for religious experience in our world. There's a market to it. There is little enthusiasm, though, for the, notice this phrase, the patient acquisition of virtue. 
so I'm going to preach on his quote. You can be inspired in a moment about the kind of husband you're called to be in sacrificially loving your wife, but becoming a husband who loves your wife is a patient process of acquiring that virtue. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen on a Sunday. It happens through something called dying over a period of time. Same with, with many other virtues. Notice this. There tends to be little inclination in the church to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what early generations of Christians called holiness. Now, what if this was our altar call, okay? Hey, everyone, wherever you're at today, we want to invite you to come forward and sign up for a long, a long time. Not tomorrow, like the rest of your life, a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Now, I'm not saying this isn't exciting, but what a kind of a, a contrary idea. Notice this, religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. And we want to be a church of hospitality and ministry, but we're not Disney World. Okay? I'm not Mickey Mouse. Okay? Thank God. Religion is tend to be understood as a visitation or as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have an adequate leisure. So, so this is what he says tends to be the problem. Everything in the church market, everything in our discipleship vision as Americans, which is so driven through, through the sort of the capitalistic idea and the corporate idea, even in the church, it can lose sight of what Jesus calls us to, which is to leave everything behind and follow him even to our death. That's the gospel. That's the invitation that Jesus is Lord and he's worth everything forever. Because he offers everything forever. So, so this is what the author of, of Hebrews is trying to lift up, lift up. He shows us Jacob, a man who didn't just have a moment of faith, but a man who, with that moment of faith, he saw beyond the moment to a long-term obedience, to a, a process of following Jesus, a vision that sees beyond the moment I'm in to keep going, this long-term vision of faith. There's a couple things as we look at this verse. I want you to see a couple things. We're just, gonna, we're just piecing this thing apart, okay? Um, I want us to see a couple things in this verse that it says Jacob did with this long-term faith. It, it tells us he blessed his grandsons. That's what a long-term faith does. It has a generational impact. It tells us that he worshipped, even at his deathbed, which is the only way that faith will be sustained, is if, is if it's based on God and his glory and not me. And it tells us that he died. This is an ode to the Old Testament. This is a hyperlink. You push it, and you go to Genesis 32. Jacob died leaning on top of his staff. He died with a limp. All right, so, so a couple key things. Write these down. It tells us first, we just saw it. It tells us that Jacob, first, as he kept hold of God, he kept hold of God's blessing in his family. This is a, a major, we could say, first motivator to why we have to have a long-term vision of faith. And the reason is because your faith matters for more than just you. Your life matters for more than your life. You've got to have a vision of your faith that sees generations to come that sees the decisions you're making today affecting the lives that are to come tomorrow. And, and Jacob, we see him in line with the other patriarchs. He is passing on the, 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 the genealogical blessing of God. The line from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob is now being passed on, even because of Joseph's two sons, being passed on to his grandkids. We see, it's really cool here, we see Jacob being intentional about 
transferring the legacy. He's thinking about it. All right. Now, there's a moment in Israel's history where the church and we should say the people of God stopped thinking about it. I mean, maybe you've stopped thinking about this. In fact, it's a really sad verse. It's in the book of Judges that says this, that when all that previous generation gathered to their fathers, it says another generation arose after them. It's just one gen later who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Imagine that. The baton of faith is dropped. No, they're not thinking about it. They're thinking about making their kids smart, making their kids healthy, making their kids athletic, making them social, making them everything except spiritual. They're, they're, they're dropping that legacy opportunity. And, and another generation arises. I mean, and what's amazing is the, the things that God did for the previous generation were unbelievable. But what God did tomorrow is not what he needs to do or what God did yesterday is not what he needs to do tomorrow. He needs to do a new thing. There always needs to be, with every generation, a new thing that is inspired by the previous generation, encouraging that group as to who God is and what he can do. And we see that that was lost. Jacob is a great model. Here, in this verse, it says that he blessed his grandsons. He kept hold of God's blessing in his family. Now, I want to communicate what I'm not saying, okay? I'm not saying that there is a way to manipulate the blessing of God. People have been trying to figure that out for the ages. Like, here's how you get God to do what you want him to do. And Jesus said, don't pray that way. Pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how we're called to pray. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that there's a, a magic formula that you can follow to make sure that your kids will be saved. But I am saying a general truth, a general truth in Scripture is that your decisions today, the seeds that you're sowing, there's promised fruit for them for the next generation and, and in both ways. So like, here, here's a vision for this, okay? Ephesians, some more Bible for you. Ephesians 6. Here's, a, I think, a, a good kind of summary of what we're talking about. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, dads, don't provoke your children to wrath. That's one option. That they abandon the faith because of how angry you make them. And they're like, if that's Jesus, I want nothing to do with that. Okay? And we could probably go around here and talk about all the ways that it's easy to provoke the next generation to wrath. When we make the gospel something it's not, when we emphasize works rather than faith and grace, there's a lot of things that we can do to do this. But instead, bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. You see the vision? There's a way to live, and there's a way to see your faith, that frustrates the next generation and, and even exasperates God's work of passing that lineage. And there's a way to live that brings them up in the Lord. That's what I want, man. As a, you know, as a church kid myself, all right, I'm, I'm an unashamed, unapologetic church kid, okay? Got some scars, all right? The third grade kid's classroom is a lion's den, all right? I've got some, some serious, even, even emotionally, even spiritually. Like, anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, raised in the church, scars, issues. There, there's things. There, there's things that God is, is healing in me. But you need him to heal you in those things. Because you're going to be a healer to another generation. He's doing what he's doing in you for someone else. So, so you can go, the church. And you can be provoked to wrath. And you can be quick to wrath. Or you can, listen, 
you can see that religious group as not just enemies, but maybe victims of the gospel being removed, of Christ being removed. And you look on at that, and, it's, and here's what's easy to do. Just be angry, Christians. Here's what's mature to do. God, that hurts. God, I'm frustrated by a lot of this. But heal me and allow me to help others. Allow me to be an instrument and a messenger of who you really are. Help me be someone that's going to train my children up, train the next generation up in the training and admonition of the Lord. See, this is an incredible opportunity we have before us. And, you know, I could preach on this all day long. I, I think if, if, because I'm a dad of three kids, I'm like, you know, multi-generations of church, and now, you know, it's weird, you know? Like, I'm a story of God's miracles because I, I skipped church. I hated church. And God's like, lead one. Um, So God has done a lot in my life. He's changed a lot in my heart. He's, he's more and more giving me a heart that's, I, I should say, an awareness of how, how hard my heart can be, how bitter I can be. He's teaching me to be loving. He's teaching me to be generous and merciful. He's teaching me. I'm not, I haven't learned it. I'm learning. But here's a question that I want you to think about with your faith, with your legacy. This is what I like to think about. Ask yourself this question, simply speaking, in terms of faith. When I pass on, what will I pass on? That's the question. When I pass on, what am I leaving behind? What am I passing on to the next gen? What am I passing on to my children? What, and, and, like, you can think beyond this. Like, what am I passing on to everyone around me? What am I giving them? What am I leaving them? When I pass on, what will I pass on? Short-term faith, like momentary experience faith, the sprint doesn't think about this. It thinks about me. What can I get from God right now? How can I get, you know, zapped and feel good about myself again? But a resilient faith, a vision that sees the long-term, that values longevity in a well-paced marathon, it's thinking about what God wants us to think about, and it's what's your legacy? What are you leaving? Okay? Amen. All right. Here's a good starter, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. You know, if you're like, okay, what am I going to pass on? And maybe you're looking at your life, you're like, I, I, ooh, I'm going to, you know. And there's some things that you have to acknowledge. Like, by the way, when I make that list for myself, I'm not like, here's all the things I will pass on. It's like, God, I pr please keep that from being passed on. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Please. Okay. And then your kids do this. They do things. You get, you're like, why'd you do that? And you're like, I taught you that. Okay. <laughs> This is what I'm shooting for. Paul's like, here's the things, faith, hope, love. Like, these are the things. He's like, this is what you need to live with so that this can be passed on. Faith, hope, and love. You know, and, and not just general faith, but I would say sincere faith. Not just like good moral citizen church-going faith, but a faith that has really encountered the living God and believes his promises. It's not a perfect faith, but it's sincere. That's so important. Uh, another thing is hope. As parents, as, as those following Jesus, what are we teaching our kids to hope in? Not by how we preach, but by how we act and how we react to what goes on in the world around us, particularly the world of American politics. It's okay to care. In fact, if you love, to truly love, you should care. But that's not a living hope. 
Your living hope is not the outcomes and the circumstances of your country. And so are you modeling that? Are you teaching with the way that you respond to events in our country? Are you teaching your kids to place their hope in something higher? So It's simple, right? But it's profound and hard to actually practice. And then love, like passing on the love of God, which, by the way, that's not something you can like write down and do. It's not something you can manufacture. This is something that happens when you are impacted yourself by God's love, when you begin to love the way that he loves you. And so faith, hope, and love, that we see Jacob modeling that. Write this next one down. We see Jacob, not only did he keep hold of God's blessing in his family, a long-term faith, a vision for faith, it's mindful of the legacies that are to come, but Jacob also kept hold, this is so key, he kept hold of God's glory in his focus. This was the fuel that got him across the finish line, okay? He kept hold of God's glory in his focus. In verse 21 of Hebrews 11, it says that by faith, Jacob blessed each one of the sons of Joseph, his grandsons, passed on the blessing. And it says, it's just a simple word, a simple verb that's put there. It says that Jacob, what? Worshipped. On his deathbed, Jacob was still worshipping God. It's as if this was the thing, this was the key to Jacob's longevity. It was the glory of God. Now, um, Jacob in Genesis chapter 32, we'll, we'll, we'll close with the story, but Jacob wrestles God, you know, just, just tell the take. God in one corner, Jacob in the other, full-on UFC style, God wins, okay? All right, undisputed champion of the universe, God, all right? That's my best Bruce Buffer right there. Jacob, after wrestling this man, this, angel, this angelic being that, that shows up there at day, right before daybreak, Jesus in the flesh, a Christophany appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, he, he wrestles with, with Jacob. And Jacob says, after this wrestling match, he says, for I have seen God face to face. And there's that same idea, right? My life is preserved, God's preservation there. But there was this encounter, there was this moment that Jacob looked back to where he encountered who God was face-to-face, the glory of God, the very person of God. And this made his worship all the more meaningful. He was worshiping this God whom he saw, even to his deathbed. Now, the reason I want to point this out is because I think we need to think about what's fueling our faith even right now. And if it's God and worshiping him or if it's something else. I mean, the principle here is, first of all, faith needs fuel. Like, your faith needs something to keep going. It doesn't go on its own. It doesn't, you know, it's not an Elon Musk car, okay? It needs fuel, okay? It ne- a Tesla, by the way, all right? But it's, it's not something that just can run on its own energy, that can, can, can get itself forward. Your faith, especially faith that's going to keep going, we've all seen faith kind of pull over on the side of the ro- road on E, but faith that goes to the very end, it, it's got to be fueled by something. And the question is, what is fueling your faith? What is keeping your faith going? For Jacob, it was the glory of God. It was who God was. That's so important. Um, there, there's kind of two ideas, big words. I'll explain them. Two ideas that, that kind of summarize, I would say, the two religious options for you. The, the two options that you and I have of faith each and every day when we wake up to follow Jesus. There's a way that is God-centered. We'll call that theocentric, centered around who God is. 
And then there's a way of faith that's anthropocentric or man-centered. Anthropocentrism, hello, is a real thing. And by definition, to be anthropocentric, listen to this definition, is to regard mankind as the central most important element of existence, especially as opposed to God or animals. So anthropocentric is this kind of humanistic version of life where you are at the center, man is at the center, and it's entirely expelled of God, it's expelled of anything spiritual. I'm at the center. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out is because this is one of the most common compromising approaches to faith. A faith that has me at the center of it, anthropocentric. And so technically what this faith is is pragmatic. It's a very pragmatic faith, right? So, so this is the kind of faith, I see this faith burn out all the time. It's faith that follows as long as God is working. Is this thing on? Is this thing working? Are my prayers working? Are they being answered? Okay, it's pragmatic. And, and in reality, this faith is not a worshiping faith. This is, this is the faith that worships self. And it sees God as a means to get what I want. This kind of faith only works until it doesn't. Until God doesn't answer the prayer. Until they're not healed. Until I'm still depressed. Until he still feels far. Until I don't have my question answered. It's a God I follow as long as he is working for me. It's kind of a consumeristic mindset and approach to God. Okay, This is a man-centered view of faith. This will get you through some high seasons. Those high moments might get you through some of those low seasons, but it will not get you across the finish line. It won't. You'll burn out. You'll give up. Once God stops working for you. The opposite of that is a God-centered faith. It's, it's what Jacob displays. It's a faith that's focused on who God is. This is amazing. Like, I can, I can testify to incredibly difficult moments of my life where God was not working, where his distance was, was farther than I could have ever imagined. But I was reminded of who he is. And I was reminded that my life is not my own, but he is God. And all of creation declares his majesty. I'm, I'm, I'm mindful of his glory. A faith that is centered and fueled upon the glory of God. I love this scripture to compliment it. Jesus says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. This is eternal life. This is long-term faith in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, so faith that is not just about an experience in a moment where God does something for me, but faith that is tethered to a relationship with the living God. It's centered around him and his glory and who he is. That will keep me going. That will keep me worshiping last idea here. Jacob lastly kept hold of God's strength in his weakness. Jacob kept hold of God's blessing in his family. He kept hold of God's glory in his focus. And what got him across the finish line? What gave Jacob the ability to keep God by faith? He kept hold of a greater strength than his own. He kept hold of God's strength in his Weakness. This is what the scripture says, that by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, that finish line faith, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, passed on that legacy, 
He worshipped. He was focused on God and his glory. And he did this. Here's that hyperlink. Leaning on the top of his staff. Jacob, at the end of his life, he was leaning on his staff. He, he had this hunch. Um, and this is not just a nod to his old age. This is, again, meant to provoke a story that comes to mind. As we mentioned earlier, when Jacob wrestled with God. Um, Jacob, in Genesis 32, he has that wrestling match with God. It's kind of like his official face-to-face encounter with God. And, and up until that point, it's important to mention this. That Jacob's whole life up until this point was largely driven by being wise in his own wisdom, by being strong in his own strength. I mean, he was the younger child, okay? Anybody know what it's like to be the younger one? You really got to fight to get your way, all right? That was Jacob. Jacob wasn't the favored son. So you look at the story of Jacob, and what do you see? You see someone who's, maybe you felt this way, in life, you, you feel like you, you don't have an advantage, and so you're forced to lean on your own wisdom. You're forced to be extra crafty. You got to sneak in there and you got to wear a Halloween costume to get that blessing. You know what I'm saying? All right? You got to be cunning. You got to be crafty. You've got to really try a little harder. And so Jacob's a guy whose his entire life has forced him to be self reliant to get by. And here's the worst part about it it's worked. Now, the problem with that is it only gets him so far. And, and so he has this moment where he's wrestling with God, and God is confronting. God asks him this great question in the wrestling match. God says, what's your name? Remember last week? Had a different name. He said, oh, I'm, uh, I'm Esau. You're not your brother. God says, what's your name? I want you to think about it. God's getting him to think about how often have I tried to get my own way in life without God. I can do this, God, in my own strength. And the, the scripture tells us that as God is wrestling Jacob all through to daybreak, it tells us that God touches the socket of Jacob's hip. That hurt a little bit, right? Touches the socket of his hip. And, and he's now injured. He's now able to, not, not able to stand up on his own two feet and have his own strength, but there's this lean he develops. In fact, I love this scripture. It's, it's just so helpful. It says that just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. It's like, you all right? You sleep bad? He's like, oh, I was wrestling God, <laughs> you know. But notice this. He, he's got this limp. He's got this weakness that is forcing him to lean. So that at the end of his life, that's how he dies. He dies leaning on his staff because of this limp. Let me ask you this morning, what's your limp? What's your weakness? What's the thing like um, that you try to hide? It's like you, you have a limp, you know, but it's graduation, so you can't limp up on the stage. So you got to like, you know, you got to like act like it doesn't hurt. You got to act like everything's fine. That thing that you tend to hide, but if you were honest about your limp, it would cause you to lean on God. It's your admission that says, I don't have all the strength. I'm not perfect. I'm deeply flawed. Does this remind you of Paul, doesn't it? In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, man, lest I should be too prideful and exalted above measure, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted too high, lest I be too puffed up and self-confident. He said, concerning this thing, this, this limp, this injury, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Prayed that three times. And God said to me, 
My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is actually made perfect in your weakness. When you come to the end of your strength, you come to the beginning of his. That weakness you have. Paul says, therefore, I love this, I will most gladly boast in my infirmities. Isn't that interesting? Like, we're just, as a church, I talk about this a lot. Like, we're, we're working on just being honest about our weaknesses. Paul's like, oh, I brag about my weaknesses. I walk around like, what's up? I'm weak. I, I boast in them. He says that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I've, I've learned through my weakness not to be that I can't depend on myself, that I need God. So God brings things into our life that cause us to limp so that we can lean, lean more heavily upon him. Paul says, therefore, imagine getting to this place, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches. I take pleasure in needs. I take pleasure in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's, strength, for, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And we see this with Jacob's life. And I, and I want to say that this is such an important piece to you finishing the race of faith. Whatever your vision is of long-term faith, if it's you leaning on you, you're not going to make it. You know that with what you're going through right now. So learn to lean. Learn to be who God created you to be, a dependent creature. Someone dependent upon your creator. I'll, I'll invite the band to come out as we close. We want to... Just be thinking about Jesus. Um, we looked at Jacob as a great example of crossing the finish line of faith. But all of these great examples are, are really just shadows of the greater example manifest in the very person of Jesus who himself came to this earth and he finished his race. Jesus is the perfect model of crossing the finish line, even there on the cross. Jesus says, Father, this is just such a beautiful, I've been meditating actually on this all week long. Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Well, I want to get there. I want to die that way. I'm not dying with a bitter, anxious spirit. I'm dying saying, here's my life, God. It's always been yours. To the very end, to the very finish line. It's in light of this that I hate to steal some thunder from the weeks ahead, but Hebrews chapter 12 says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance. This is the call. Running with endurance, the race that is set before us. But here's how we do it. We look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, so this is where scripture, in light of a calling like this, a promise that God's going to preserve you, a calling to endure by faith to the very end, it's going to be complemented by encouragement for where to fix your eyes, to keep your eyes not on you. Don't keep your eyes on your performance. Don't keep your eyes even on the circumstances around you. But have the vision that lifts your eyes above it all to see Jesus. And I love this about Jesus. He's the author of who started your faith, he started your story, he's the finisher as well. He began to write your story. Here's the good news. He doesn't start a book he doesn't finish, right? When God begins to write a story, he has the end in mind. Maybe right now you feel like you're in a chapter that's like the final chapter and you can't see beyond where you are. 
You don't even know how to keep going. And scripture just says, that's okay, just look to Jesus. He's still writing your story. He's got your final chapter in mind. And listen, if you haven't crossed the finish line, you're not there yet. So keep going, keep persevering. Let me pray for us. I want to invite you to stand with me. What we want to do as we close out this moment is I want us to just sing that song that we sang on the way in. We were singing about Jesus. We were singing about his name. We were singing about his character. We were fixing our attention on him. So wherever you may be in your faith journey, maybe this is just a moment for you. Whether you feel far ahead or you feel a little bit far behind, we all have the same focus right now to gain, and it's to look at who Jesus is. It's to put your attention back on him. Maybe it's been on a couple other things, and here's a chance just to take a moment. And say, God, I want to follow you forever. Jesus, I want a faith that doesn't just live for you, but also dies for you to the very end. Maybe some of us need to repent of this sort of short-term sprint approach we've had. And we need to say, God, give us a long-term vision. And as we gain that, we say, give us a vision of your son, Jesus, who is not just the author, but also the finisher of our faith. 